0: Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is David Tomasi, who is one of the players of my D&D group on Sundays, as well as a neuroscientist, a psychologist, a professor, a polymath, and a polyglot. He's an amazing man. This is our second recorded conversation. The first one was about geopolitics from a European perspective and linguistics, and it went all over the map. And uh, this conversation Conversation is about neuroscience and spirituality and religion and psychology. And I kind of have a little extra time in my content schedule because I'm in the middle of moving and I don't have a lot of time to produce content. So I thought it would be a great time to introduce you all to David, who's not really online at all. So I'm not going to link anything in the description. Just really happy to connect him with you because he's just. Frickin' brilliant and very enjoyable. So without further ado, here is David Tomasi. Can you angle it down just a bit? Oh, yeah, sure, of course. Give me more, more of this. Yeah. With that. There we go. Yeah, there right. we go. Is that all good? All good. You're a very yeah. handsome man, yeah. David Oh, Tomasi. boy.
1: Oh, thank you. Likewise, I think you...
0: Well, no, You're I, do, I, I, I set the camera up so I can get away with... Oh, okay. All stuff. <laughs> you look like a, a naturally strapping young man. Did you have a lot of... Uh, attention from the ladies when you were on the market? You
1: should ask my wife that question, <laughs> you know?
0: <laughs> or were you more of a Interview nerd? Interview her, yeah. Oh, yeah?
1: Um, you know what? This is something that I always find kind of interesting. I think both. Um, I think I was definitely a nerd, as in I always loved study stuff. I was a bookworm, as they say. Yeah. But I definitely enjoyed the company of friends, let me
0: put it that way. Okay, that's fair.
1: Is it diplomatic enough for an answer?
0: Very, very diplomatic. (laughs) Maintains your, once your kids find this when they're older.
1: Right, right, exactly, exactly.
0: They'll maintain a (laughs) righteous image of you in your mind. (laughs) (laughs) Is today Sunday? Yeah, it is Sunday. I'm Today just, is Sunday. Yes, yes, yeah. It's been, it's been, uh, been Christmas break is coming to an end, and so I kind of lost my days. I don't. Know
1: yes, why. it's a quite remarkable day. You know, Sunday and New Year's, Feast of the Virgin Mary, all of the above. Oh, really? Yep, yeah, indeed.
0: Is yes. there a special? Uh, is is the Catholic calendar that's solar, right? Yes. As, yeah. As, as well, the,
1: there there is two. There's the old and the new one, or the Justinian one and the you know Gregorian one, uh, which separates the Eastern from the Western Catholics. Yeah. But in, in any case, yes, uh, I would say that there's a quite a bit of an overlap between the two. Yeah. But it, aside from Christmas, because the Eastern part celebrates on the sixth, December sixth, versus uh, the Romans celebrate on the twenty fifth. Do you know why? Mo- most of them. Yeah, there's a difference between the Gregorian calendar. and the the other one okay so that's the reason but we do celebrate the epiphany on the sixth so and and by we i mean the the manifestation the manifestation of the holy spirit so
0: where where mary receives or the pentecost kind of thing
1: that that, that's later on that's later on yeah it's, it's a manifestation of the holy spirit so yeah yeah but, but anyway, so it's it's Sunday.
0: <laughs> it is it's Sunday. Sunday
1: after the the New Year, so yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm just wondering: Greens is there like a focus. special
0: feast today, the first Sunday after New Year?
1: Well, it's the it's the fourth of Advent, fourth of Christmas, on top of being a Sunday, on top of being you know the feast of uh, the Virgin Mary. So that's, oh, uh, there's wow. a lot of things that just happened this year. Yeah. Uh, and and one Pope will bury the other one, which also something that didn't happen in thousand and thousand years. Yeah. The, you know that we had two popes, uh, one emeritus and one, which is the current pontiff. So you have the, the American pope, Pope Francis, hailing from Argentina. And then you have Pope Ratzinger, uh, Benedict Sixteenth, who passed away um, yesterday, I think, at 9.30 Rome time. Yeah. So. Anyway, so it's, uh, I was reading it's, a little bit. A day full of significance.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was reading a little bit about Catholicism. Well, specifically about Vatican II
1: and oh, right. the impact that that's. So you're a
0: nerd. No, no, I'm, I'm terribly <laughs> not a nerd. I was <laughs> just I find it fascinating um, because you know ca- Catholicism, Hills has a very long lineage. But in the 60s, they decided to update things. And Mm. there was one op-ed in the New York Times that spoke about, like, this encroachment of liberalism, by which I think Mm. the guy meant reformation or revolution or continual Mm. reform, infinite reform, like this kind of Mm. Western Mm -hmm. notion of constantly reforming, constantly reforming, and how... That got injected into Catholicism via Vatican II, and there's no going back from that. So mm, there's mm-hmm, a lot of rifts mm-hmm. and stuff like that. There's conservatives and liberals. We need to keep changing. We need to mm. stop changing. Do you have a opinion on that? I I
1: partially agree on that one. Um, I agree on the fact that there was a lot of change. That's you know kind of. Uh, uh, but I also agree that change was good. Uh, and I'm not saying this just to be nice. And by good, I mean, I think Vatican II made Catholicism closer to Protestantism. Uh, and in that sense, I think it's a good thing. Um, as, but I'm not saying—so th- this is my claim. Hmm. I'm not saying that, you know, pick what, whichever you want. All religions and creeds are, are equally true. I'm not making the claim at all, in fact— any serious religion would agree that it is not the truth, you know, that you cannot just pick and choose. But I do agree that, uh, and it's not just mygram, it's just the Catholic position on, on the matter, too, that uh, most religions do contain several kernels of truth. And so we should strive to do our best to find ways to focus on that and not on the differences. So in that sense, Vatican II, I think, accomplished that. And there's a lot of um, hard work to bridge the gaps, I would say. Now, this doesn't mean however and this is the part that i disagree with that you could put let's say orthodoxy catholicism and protestantism in the same basket i would say that orthodoxy is the closest together with islam probably to catholicism um and so liberalism for liberalism sake that's part that i disagree with huh that's what i would say i mean and and so the issue is that w- which direction would you pick in terms of purity of tradition, right? The, the idea is, well, if you if you want to claim to follow a certain, I don't know how to phrase it, a certain belief, make sure that you believe it's closer, the closest to the truth you can find, so that you don't find a lot of changes, not because the changes are intrinsically wrong, but because you you might not be able to understand, for instance, a text the way it was. So, for instance, if you download a file, make sure that the file is not corrupt so that you have the original one, and then you can use it you know, to your liking. If there's something missing, then you might have a problem. So, in that sense, if it were true uh, that before Vatican II, then you had perfect tradition, and after that you had completely made-up tradition, then, of course, anything after you know, Vatican II should be rejected by that. But the truth is that I want to give you an example of that. So one of the biggest changes for us was a change of the language, right? Before it was Latin throughout. Now, for me, you know, selfishly speaking, that'll be easier because you know that that's the closest to my language. You know, if everybody spoke Latin, you know, much much easier to understand in English for me. So yeah, bring it down. But that will not be considered a true tradition for too many reasons. First of all, because other churches that are as old as Catholicism, I'm talking about Eastern Orthodoxy, changed to vernaculars, you know, almost almost right away, simply because most folks did not understand Latin or Greek. And I'm talking about the Slavs, the Russians, for instance. You cannot make the same claim if you're talking about the Greek or Roman world, because if you really want to go to the truth, you better, in my mind, at least read the text in the languages in which the text was either written or spoken about. That, that's my take on it.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so... If you make any type of um, traditionalist claim and you say, "Well, in the past everything was, you know, the same from from the beginning," okay? that is the claim. Well, the least you can do is make sure you you master at least one of the three languages spoken at a time. Now, if if the Bible or the Talmud was written in the United States, you could say, "Well, the official language is English," but then you might want to expand on Spanish, for instance, and maybe some other minority language. So. If you use that argument for the Bible, the the official language in Judea was Latin. It was the Roman Empire. And yet, most people around that, the officials spoke Latin, of course, but Greek was really the the language that was considered the lingua franca. On top of that, though, Aramaic was the ethnocultural language. So if you want to pick, at least pick one of those three, I would say, and if you don't master that, you better want to read it in the, la- the modern language that's the closest to at least one of those three. So for Latin, you can pick Italian or Spanish, I would say. South speaking, I would pick Italian because the Vatican is the Arab Italian, but Spanish yeah. would be as good um, in comparison to, let's say, Romanian. That's a little more further away. And from Aramaic, you could speak Maltese or Arabic. You, could even, you can even learn modern Hebrew, but there's a lot of neologism and so yeah. you might miss some of that. And for the Greek, well, modern Greek will be pretty good. The problem with some interpretation that was closer to Protestantism is that most of that was, and still is, based on very modern version of the Bible, you know, KJV, you know, King, King James version, and etc. And then they're all in English, which is great. But yeah. if you if you claim to go back to the purer tradition, and you use a translation. And yet your claim is that, well, you know, the church changed a lot of things. Well, go, go back to the original one. It's the least you can do. Uh, and I think the Vatican do I attempted to do that because they invited, uh, you know, theologians from all over the world. Uh, so th- this is my take. I wasn't born, <laughs> so, yeah. but that would be my take.
0: Well, so they introduced into the services specifically or across the board the local languages. So I don't know to what extent Catholics uh-huh. were speaking and writing in latin outside of the services mm-hmm, mm-hmm. outside of the rituals well
1: latin is still the official language of both the religion and of the country of the state of the vatican it's the official. so all official documents are still written in latin so if you want to read them you better learn latin but in practice if you live there italian is the lingua franca really so most prelates and priests and bishops would use italian you know in conversations and so Uh, If you, for instance, if you you watch the Mass today, uh, what the Popes usually do, they might have bits and pieces in multiple languages, from Japanese to Arabic to English, but then once they read from the Bible, it's either Latin or Italian. So when they change the liturgy, then you you no longer have the same language across the ritual. However, let let me be clear here. One of the things that also separates, for the most part, I'm putting a lot of things in the same basket here, and again... I love this conversation, but I'm not a theologian, so the, my limited understanding is based on what I know to this point. Um one of the things that separates Catholicism from most Protestantism is it's we, we don't have sola scriptura. So we don't believe that the Bible is the only source uh of authority or the not for authority. And so it, paradoxically we say who, who cares if you read the Bible in English, you know, it's not the sole authority. But yet, if you want to make a claim, well, You guys are changing things. Let's go back to the roots. Well, the roots are Greek, Latin, and Aramaic. So um, that would be more of a... But there's always a danger, for instance, when uh, uh, you can make the same claim, or it's really not the same claim, but a similar claim to both Judaism and Islam. You know, if you read the text in the original language, that, that is the truth, right? And... But what you're going to do if there is a discrepancy between the language of the culture and the language of the book, you know, um, Latin and Italian are very, very similar, you know, after 2000 years still. And so if I'm saying a word in Latin, the likelihood that the meaning is preserved in Italian and therefore I know how to use it. It's quite high. If instead, you know, your everyday language is, let's say, French or whatever, and you need to read a Talmud, then you have to find a way to convey the modern meaning of the term. Does that make sense? Yeah. But
0: um, as a Catholic, well, I'm not a Catholic, but I I was in Austria a few years ago. Oh, I've told this uh-huh. story several times, Innsbruck, and I was kind of just exploring in Innsbruck, the Innsbruck, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We're like half an hour away from my hometown. Anyway. Oh, really? <laughs> beautiful country, beautiful land. Um, I was walking around town, a little village kind of town thing, and there was this mm-hmm, door, mm-hmm. this door really old door yeah and I, I didn't understand what it was but people were going in and out of it i'm like oh what's in there so i opened it up and it was this kind of this catholic church that was kind of crammed in there it wasn't a cathedral it was kind of almost like it had a cave-like feeling to it uh-huh. i kind of walked in and the service had started and i didn't know what to do so i sat down and i just kind of witnessed the ceremony oh, wow. the liturgy and it was all in latin so far as i could tell it wasn't in german yeah um yeah and it was just a very 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 profound experience for me i just felt oh wow i felt a resonance through that through participating in that i felt the the layers upon layers of worship in that uh-huh. room it was just so profound for me and i uh after that like i felt that if I crossed myself, like that would deal yeah. with a lot of like my anxiety or it would really oh, help me. Wow. So I started crossing myself a lot and that was really helpful for me psychologically. And then I went back wow. to the States, to Portland, Oregon, where I was living. And I'm like, maybe this is yeah. for me. And so I went to a Catholic mass and it was in English. Mm-hmm. And the guy was talking in English and everything was in English. And I just, it was so, so dis- frustrating for me. I was just so frustrated uh-huh. by it. And cause I understood what he was saying and I didn't want yeah. to understand. Yeah. I wanted yeah, the that connection. Yeah. The mysticism. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or just that the whole thing. Yeah. So it, it vulgarized it. And so I could not access what I had been given access to when I was participating in uh-huh. the Latin. Right. And, uh, so I understand that understanding is important for like knowledge and for the congregation on one level, but on another level is church or worship really about understanding things. I mean, I understand Mm -hmm. like a homily or like some words of advice or speaking about the core doctrine about forgiveness and, and Jesus and understanding that as a part Mm -hmm. of the ceremony, but the ceremony itself, I don't, I don't know if that, the ceremony itself needs to be understood and communicated Mm. up here. And as a Protestant, it always been communicated either through emotional music or through mental and moral teaching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I had a problem with Protestantism and I went through kind of a separation from that, it was because Uh it was, it felt like people were loving God, like they would love a lover rather than participating in something finer Mm -hmm. and higher. It was more, understandable and more earthly and translating the divine into the earthly i know it it it, it's more understandable but that just doesn't seem to be the point to me so i guess kind of i'm throwing a lot of things out here but to what degree is the liturgy turning into a local language good for Mm -hmm. the point of that liturgy wow this is beautiful you really have me speechless um well,
1: let, let me start with a brief example. The, the same happens to us. And by us, I mean all us Europeans. When we listen to an English song, I'm not talking about something very profound, like a pop song. Yeah. The moment you understand the lyrics, the magic disappears. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you before, I used to be, I still am, you know, quite a metal head. Um, and so <laughs> something that you might find quite funny is that there's a lot of... Catholic population that is really in tune with very hard, dark black metal with a lot of growl and, you know, face paint and whatnot, yeah. because there, there's a mystical liturgical element to that. Yeah. Um, and, and and you don't quite understand all the lyrics, so there's a suspension of judgment. And, and I think you're spot on. Of course, this is kind of a, an analogy. And the same is, I think, dating, too, you know, if, how how much you want to know your partner, how much you want to be surprised. Uh I don't necessarily think that the Protestant attitude is a wrong one. In fact, I think it might be better than the average Catholic when you mention that they love God the same way as love uh, a lover, a person. You think about, you know, my name is David, and the Psalms are all about that, really. Uh, you know, yeah. even even heartfelt, visceral love. Yes. So I, I, I okay. like that, and I wish we had more of that in Catholicism. That we. So that's one of the areas that I think— I really don't like to compare and contrast, like a Protestant better, Catholic better, but it's something that we could learn. What I can give you as my metaphor is that, well, two, one, one slightly less disrespectful than the other, but we are my <laughs> friend, so who cares? <laughs> the first one is that I feel that attending a Protestant service, a sermon, is having the music sheet in front of you, but you're not playing it. Going to mass is playing it, but you might not be able to read the letters the mm-hmm. the notes um so in that sense you you are absolutely right um there's more explaining overall in the service itself so if if liturgy was all we had at this point, I'm not sure if I would be spiritually attracted to Catholicism either because i you know because of my job and just my mindset I need to eviscerate things and so. I love theology. I love you know studying that stuff, and that's why I'm saying I'm not a theologian because I'm not smart enough, honestly, with you. Uh, and I don't don't say this with, I don't know, an, an embellishing purpose. I think I think it's easier to study neuroscience than studying theology. You have better ways to verify the truth. It's just all yeah. that. Yeah. So, and the other thing that it's a little <laughs> less respectful, I think that. To a big extent, and, and that's at least, you know, how, how I experienced it, Protestantism is the social justice warrior movement of Christianity. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, a, it's a protest. It's a, you're protesting about something which is ethically justified. Um, and so when, when you know, when, when, when we think about how, you know, the SJW movement turned out to be in the last decades, well, it's horrifying. But for the most part, if you, if you look back, there was a lot of things that were supposed to speak about in terms of social justice, war in Vietnam, racial equality, um, that I certainly believe was meant to be there because it was ethically justified. We, we needed it. And so if you make the claim, at least the, the origin of Protestantism were ethically justified to clear up the mess and the corruption in the church. So in that sense, it was entirely justified. Um, and, and so, hmm. for hyper traditionalists, which we call, you know, sede vacantist, I'm not sure if you heard a term before, sede vacantism. Yeah, so sede vacantism are folks that believe that nothing, absolutely nothing after Vatican II is legit. And sede vacantism comes from sede vacante, which is Latin or Italian for empty seat. So there is no pope oh, after. Wow. after the... So it, you might think of Ratzinger, who just passed, you know, bless his soul, as relatively more orthodox in comparison to Pope Francis, but nobody is orthodox enough for vacantism. Um, and that position, I feel it's both theologically inconsistent, historically incorrect, and also pointless. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, but one of the reasons that I disagree is that they they consider Protestantism, for the most part, as like the, the worst that can happen like there's no ethical justification it's 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 part of the devil and I tend to disagree with that fully mm-hmm. uh if for no other reason that a very similar debates happen not just you know in the first two centuries of Christianity but twenty five hundred years before the birth of Christ you know you know Sadducees and Pharisees that those debates are part of yeah so if you okay. if you eliminate yeah. the debate you better do that if you can Theologically or philosophically, prove the inconsistency of the philosophical position, but you cannot just eliminate the debate for the sake of eliminating the debate, yeah. which is, in my view, what this position, the settlement position, does for the most part. Yeah. But then, from 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 the perspective of more liberal Catholics, I might appear more orthodox because I I do appreciate the need of not just watering down the liturgy. If that makes sense.
0: No, it does. It. It's uh, I guess it, it. we're always living in tension with the past and the future, too, and the present. And the process of updating culture is constant. One thing that you made me think of is that even though I do agree that even atheism is a sect of Protestantism, which is a sect of Christianity mm. in a certain respect, mm. mm-hmm. um, just because it's a constant... Uh, purging of extemporaneous uh, belief from human experience which i think jesus was Mm -hmm. all about getting to the core of things getting to the truth getting to love getting to the essence of the faith and of the bible and i think that atheism in a certain respect not not low tier atheism but just as a Mm -hmm. movement Mm -hmm. that we've seen over the course of the last 20 30 40 years and even Mm -hmm. you know since the scientific revolution and over the last few centuries that has been incubated within christianity really does rely just like liberalism relies on christian Mm -hmm. assumptions Mm -hmm. of behavior and actually relies on christian assumptions of humanity it has a theology hidden inside of it even though it's kind of purged you know in this kind of protestant way we're going to take off the idols we're going to take off we're going to clean things up up. very puritan um Mm -hmm. but what anchors protestantism that is still connected to christianity um as opposed to social justice which is just kind of a very radical version of that is that protestantism has this movement Inward towards self perfection, clean your room,, yeah. and my yes. relationship to God is most important and yeah. if you don't have that, then the social justice warrior mindset is more about I need to change the world, and it 's all this projection of history and it 's this very big way of thinking that obscures you know personal development and can, can mm-hmm. lose the anchor to personal responsibility, and that 's why we see um, the horrors of various different social movements going off the rails such as you know communism the french revolution is because Mm -hmm. these people completely lost the plot because they were thinking yeah purely like rationalist terms or just socioeconomic terms and exploding their ego onto that level and and losing connection Mm -hmm. to that um i don't know where i was going with that thought but that's just something that you made me think of
1: yeah I, i i think you're fully you know Spot on. Um, I I mentioned it from time to time. Uh, If I I were to pick a religion in the absence of a more firm belief, I would pick atheism (laughs) for two reasons. First of all, because I I do indeed believe that uh, um, it it, it is a form of, there's a cultic element in that. Um, There's a ritualistic element. There is, um, if nothing else, it, it can serve as a substitute for religion. Uh, it, it makes us feel, and you know, mm. it makes us feel that we know more than we actually do know. But the reason why, you know, I mentioned this before. I, when when I talk to my students about the scientific method and research, I always say, you know, if it's a good place to start because you don't take anything for granted.
0: Mm. Or you try and not so, to. You endeavor to. You, you to try to. not. Yeah.
1: You might argue, well, this is more of a agnostic position than an atheist. Sure. Um, at that level, the, the, the reason why I'm using it, I think, is more semantics. Um, Simply, you don't want to use the, like, in a scientific method, if you want to prove the hypothesis to be true or false, that you don't want to take any variables that you did not previously examine. So, unless you have the proof that one of these variables is true, please don't accept anything. And so, in that sense, I I value atheism. And I also value atheism simply because this is more personal, nor theological, or philosophically profound. The, some of the most profound people I, you know, had a chance to work with were atheists, and they were extremely open and keep searching. So they were not interested in either this kind of pseudo-modernist, uh, you know, I don't know, um, militant atheism. You know, the, the usual one, the Dawkins, the Harris, et cetera. Um, Hitchens, although he has a beautiful voice, so maybe I can spare Hitchens. Mm-hmm. Um, Dennett. Uh, a- and any solid philosopher will have no problem, really you know, unpacking their, you know, their very poorly founded claims about pretty much anything. And yet, I think I mentioned to you before, I have this big red flag that waves more when I am, I'm more scared of religious extremists than atheist extremists. Hmm. Maybe because uh, I feel I can deal with atheism better. It's closer to my environment professionally. Yes. Um, I think I'm one of the very few, you know, scientists in my team that it has some sort of belief. Uh, um, m- 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 some of them don't really spend too much time thinking about this type of topics, uh, not because they're superficial, but they're just so busy in doing their research. But I assume that most of them are either atheists or agnostics. So uh, it feels familiar to me nowadays, um, as opposed to you know more of a religious extremist. That I feel I'm ill prepared because we speak such a different language. Um, but that said, I fully agree with you uh, on the fact that, um, let me put it this way. Uh, atheism as as a fact was part of human history since the beginning of time, I would say, uh, rightfully so. But the turn it took, uh, you said right, French Revolution, I would probably prepone that, like 200 years, like humanism, 1400, Florence. Um, hmm. Which, again, back then was justified. It was an atheist that, that stemmed from the fact that we, we, at the time they want to better incorporate, you know, traditional knowledge. And keep in mind, to this day, even in Italian, we say modern religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and ancient religion, Roman religion, Greek religion, etc. So huh. we still view that. You say, well, Catholicism has, you know, 2,100 years of history— yeah, but see a modern religion, yeah. So that's Judaism. <laughs> and so if you really want to be a traditionalist, go back, right? <laughs> but the truth is that they didn't stand from anything either. So, you know, if you if you go back to Canaanite religions and pre-monotheistic, you know, Sinai, Mesopotamian culture, there's a lot of affinity on that. Um, hmm. and so it was I think it was justified in 1400 to have this open-minded set of assumption about, let's see if what we believe makes sense and how much overlap there is with Aristotelian knowledge, Islamic knowledge at the time, Judish, right. um, Talmudic, and, you know, uh, yeah. Kabbalah knowledge. So, but the French Revolution was like, yeah, just toss really all the babies, literally speaking, with the baby water,
0: with the bath yeah. water. So, You I, mentioned I you. humanism. Do you know kind of, mm. a, you almost, you kind of said it within a historical con. Uh, you know, context. Yes. So what is humanism?
1: So when, in, in in general, in Europe, by humanism, we mean the philosophical movement of 14, 1450 in Tuscany, Florence, and from that spread throughout Europe. So nothing to do with what we call post-humanism for the last 100, 150 years. Uh, so humanists are people that were, to a big extent, you, I can mention a few, a few authors. Um, Pico della Mirandola, for instance, one of the, the primary uh philosophers of the time. And, and and more modern ones that kind of base their assumption, either as a criticism or an expansion on that. Think of um, um Giambattista Vico, for instance. Most of them were Italians. Um and um and to some minor extent, Giordano Bruno. Um so humanism as putting humanity at the center, which was you could make the claim the the philosophical or intellectual mm-hmm. equivalent of what Galileo was doing in astrophysics, okay, or you know,
0: or, or science in general. But so putting... by by human, they yeah. didn't mean the hominoid descendant of apes. They, no. they didn't think of it no. as a you know biological category. There was some sort of idea. Of what a human is, or at least an attitude towards what a human is? Like, what, so, so see, what is see, that to put the human? So this is the, in? The, the,
1: the part that I have problem answering, because, like, for instance, I and I think it's just something that I feel. I think it's historically true. I actually never, ever experienced any, any conflict between science and religion within Catholicism ever. I never met any Catholic that would even question evolutionary theory um, and so this this separation between the biologistic view and the spiritual view it's something that was very foreign to me as a, as a Catholic. You know, but, but why would you why would you ever claim you know not to to agree with that? Now this will not be so, and that's why I have a hard time answering the question because Darwin did not exist in the 1400. Yeah. And so to to make the leap, you know, are are human beings descended of apes? Well, you cannot make the claim historically speaking because it was not in the making there. But even if it was, I don't think it would constitute any serious problem to the theology of the time.
0: Okay. But um, there is still a theology there, even though there's not a God at the center. There's a human sure, humanity, sure. humanism. So what is yes. what, what what is that thing that they're calling human? Well, historically speaking, the one that I was referring to, humanism
1: simply wants to put a human being at the center of creation, not to make it God, but simply not to make assumption on the on the same level of hierarchy that was previously the justification for the place of the man in the world. So, in other words, does the fact that the Earth is no longer the center of of the universe change things or not? No. Theologically speaking, it does not. But let's make sure that we don't confuse things. So, that level of humanism was actually, paradoxically speaking, more theologically correct. Humanism was the application of the Catholic disdain for pride. Listen, guys, you're just humans. You're not gods. So humanism wants to put you back in your proper place. You're just one part of the universe. You're not the masters of the universe, which is very different from the way humanism and transhumanism is nowadays, which is actually making people God or making them believe they are God. Yeah. Uh, Up to one point, and I feel with transhumanism, Computers might be gods or artificial intelligence might be God.
0: Mm, Wow. Yeah. Um, But okay. So just to try to sketch out um, the development from this historical humanism that you're talking about and then Mm. post-humanism that you you mentioned, like the last 150 years, maybe the liberal humanism. So so this older form of humanism was, I'm just kind of guessing here. Based on uh, the scientific method or Aristotelian kind of uh, yes, attitude towards so. nature, uh, we're going to think things through. We're going to base our beliefs on what we can know and what we can understand and what we can't know mm-hmm. and can't understand. We're not going to pretend to know or Correct. understand. Correct. So kind of a Correct. humility of knowledge, of uh, epistemic yes. humility.
1: Yes. Okay. And keep in mind that, you know, I, I really, please bear with me. I always like to talk about words, but. Humility really means going back to the earth, as in soil, humilitas in Latin. So it, oh. it's it's really biology, you know, and that's why it's not inconsistent with you know theology. Yeah, you 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 literally came from matter, so you yeah. better understand matter better.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah. Is there so, is there a yeah. I, I guess we can look this up offline but um humility and humanity humanity comes from no no no
1: humanity no, there t- this is a false equivalency is a false uh, false friends um humanity comes from homo okay uh, which is the, the human Same. being and yep. humilitas now it, between homo and humilitas you there might be something but keep in mind what but one man is, was created uh, from the dust
0: up. so you can understand that there would be yes a yes a uh, I, i'm always
1: hummus. afraid to make that claim uh yeah because the, the way the way so one common, common mistake that you can make in, in uh, historical linguistic is, is to assume that the vowels override a consonant. So with homo and humilitas, you have that humo sound, but in ancient alphabets, you did not have vowels. So you had to be careful not to, well, yeah. they got kind of, just because it sounds like a duck and walks like a duck, it has to be a duck. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's a okay. Tyrannosaurus Rex. So. Okay, It might be, it would be nice if that would be the case. I'm not quite sure.
0: Yeah, it's poetic, but yeah. The, the same in, way as between the,
1: the, the homo in Latin and homo in Greek, you know, homo in Greek is same, which are versus homo in Latin, it's human, oh. H-O-M-O. Oh. Yeah. False equivalency. So, oh, okay. so if you want to say a sentence such as the same man, you would say homo, homo.
0: Okay. But so homo it's sapien different. and homosexual are two different uses Correct. of the word completely, homo.
1: Correct. Completely, completely Whoa. different. Yes. Wow. Yep. Yeah.
0: yeah. Every conversation is just a wealth of new knowledge with you, Dave. Oh, thanks to you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I kind of I, I have an idea where I want to go in in the conversation, um, just to let the audience know that. But um, so that humanism that we were talking about, kind of epistemic humility is it fair enough to yes. just kind of just say that's kind of the foundation of that yeah. or the, yes. what they were, their starting point and what the work did it. So what is this kind of post-humanism that you were talking about the, over the last 150 years, this modernism?
1: Yes, I think um, one author just came to mind, uh, Yuval Harari, he's an Israeli author, philosopher, um, H-A-R-A-R-I, Harari. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, post-humanism, I mean, I'm really... Gonna simplify things here, no, not not because I don't want to insult your knowledge, but because it takes forever. Yeah. It's simply the assumption that, yeah, men, as in human beings, are definitely better than a sky god that never existed in the begin uh, to, to begin with, hmm. but they're really not that useful, and they will become less and less useful as we progress with artificial intelligence and computers. So posthumanism is the idea that, or transhuman, is that there's a debate between w- w- which term means what. Um, w- we were supposed to put ourselves at the center of the universe because we had to replace god since god did not exist but nowadays we just need to you know leave more room for computers because we are just not that capable of what so that's of anything pretty much you know okay um, so
0: we're a, we're and, a stain we're a flaw we're 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 and outmoded, and that's where you know or? and, and
1: that, that's the difference i would say between post-humanism and transhumanism transhumanism suspended judgment in their own judgment because it's pointless to talk about morality since it's made up stuff anyway so you know stop crying about your role in the world you know computers just better than every task so you're not that valuable as a thing anymore deal with it
0: oh, this sounds, so this is really utilitarian then the only thing yes, that, yes, the only to, metric yeah. that matters is some sort of efficiency but efficiency for what what's the purpose there Other well and
1: that's where you go back to you know david hume and you more. go back to uh, you, you say it rightly you say to to productivity uh, and your value is predicated upon how much you can produce in the, the the smaller amount of time with the least amount of you know you know expenses. And, and in that sense, you know, you don't really need to be a philosopher to understand it. <laughs> Any computer is faster than than us. Yeah. Well, uh, but the, the danger of that is that you you might, if you psychologically speaking, if you cannot deal with that. So in other words, if a person with not solid philosophical understanding, reads a book by Harari and, and f- finds you know, himself in desperation. You know, my, my whole castle just you know fell apart. I have no meaning. There's no meaning to life. My life has no meaning. The danger is that you will revert to a sentimentalist version of spirituality where you just make stuff up just to make yourself feel better, but mm-hmm. without any solid core. That's the danger I see. Yeah. Once you push on one end, and the end is very much materialistic, utilitarian, um, and nihilistic, then the risk is then you're gonna be bouncing back to kind of very embellished, floral, you know, sentimentalist version of of um, hmm. of spirituality that makes
0: you spiritually weak. Huh. Okay. This is that, that's how I see it. Where I wanted to go actually. So. This post humanism has a lack of spirit, it has a lack of addressing certain human needs. Uh, but, Unless you're that, a certain think, type of human. Those, need. human
1: uh, those needs are re- irrelevant, I would say. It's not that they fail to address them, they're just irrelevant. Um, we are just here by accident, we, okay. we won't really leave a mark. And whatever mark we leave, it's nowhere as profound and meaningful as the mark that automated machines will leave because they're already capable to do much more than us. Okay. So if there's anything of value to us, is the fact that we started the process. So if you don't want to go to the fully nihilistic view, so well, at least we we were the one that invented computers after all. Okay, that's not too different than comparing theistic and deistic version of reality. So yeah, sure, we are the god that created a computer, but we take no effect, you know, posthumously in the way computers do. Computers, once they're born, they're going to do their thing. And if fact, most likely will kill us all type of thing. So it's a very, huh. I don't know, steampunky uh, outlook. okay, In that sense, like, you know, we... and But, but there's... There's there's a sentimentalist value in that, I feel. Uh, like, if you read some of these authors, there is some sort of I don't know, nihilistic Isaac Asimov feeling to it where, you know, it's... Um, Oh, I, oh! here I have a, have a good comparison. I'm going to make this comparison, and this will really make your audience you know, scary because whenever you mention his name, people are just scary. use Evola, the Italian philosopher. You might not have heard of his name. In English, very often uh, his name is uh, rendered as Julius Evola, E-V-O-L-A. Okay.
0: Yeah. What did you and what one is of his most... Books? Yeah, okay. Yeah.
1: Um, w- one of his most famous work is... Uh, riding the tiger or revolt against the modern world we talked about the 30s 40s okay and one of his arguments and again i'm not i'm not defending his arguments but it's a very similar argumentation here that so he was for lack of a better term a traditionalist with a capital t a time traditionalist and uh he considered i mean this is really i'm, I'm giving his biography in the form of a meme just for the sake of time but he considered both Hitler and Mussolini is really not right-wing enough. You know, they're really not, like, kind of, you know, okay. the true traditionalists will will get rid of everything that came, really, to be for the last 3,000 years. There's really nothing of significance in those 3,000 years in, in modern history, nothing. Um, no, certainly not those desert religions. So he was really extremist in that sense. But one thing he said is, like it or not, we lost the war, the, the, the right-wing lost the war, our values are long gone. And even the last stronghold of traditional values, Catholicism, which we completely despise, but at least was has some you know, semblance of, of tradition, it will disappear because you know th- that's where things are. So we can only learn how to stand on the ruins. We can no longer be um in charge of reality, but the least we can do is develop some core here to yeah. be able to stand on the ruins. And his view, which was not really correct, you know, in terms of historical uh, study of religion, but yeah. he claimed that well, this is just the Kali Yuga It's the is the darkest age that humanity will go through. So we're all gonna die, and eventually, you know, as a you know purifying fire, the world will be reborn four thousand years from now, whatever. Okay. So the ones that were able to stand despite of the destruction of the world yeah. and the machines taking over will be the one that will. I wouldn't say gain benefit in the afterlife, but prove themselves. Okay. So that, that view was kind of similar to Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. You know, his emphasis on the fact that too much uh, progressive development of the machines will destroy nature, destroy tradition. There, there's a, many scenes in The Lord of the Rings where Saruman um, actually employs orcs and this piece of machinery to destroy the trees and the sacred forest. So, and, and Tolkien was Catholic, of course. And yeah. So, there, so I'm, what I'm trying to say is that there, I'm not drawing comparison between Tolkien and Evola and Harari, no, but you can see where this is headed. Hmm. The world will fall apart yeah. if you believe in that narrative. So there's gonna be either people that will become too superficially spiritual by becoming weak sentimentalists or you become a hero. Yeah, but The only way to become a hero is to sacrifice yourself and stand on the ruins.
0: Well, okay, yeah. I mean, that, that would be the good here. I guess the villain would be the person who just decides to accelerate the whole process and demolish everything and you know, go yes. to a war of the wills kind of thing. So you can either sacrifice yes. yourself, or you can sacrifice everybody else to prove yourself. Yeah, there.
1: but but here's the thing. Here's, here's the problem. In, in, in the traditional narratives you find in movies, the villains is at least to some extent, aware that he is a villain, you know, and I'm going to do the bad thing to destroy the world too. Versus in transhumanism, it's more like, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's like Nietzsche, you know, it's, it's beyond good and evil. I'm not doing bad things, just, just the natural course of events. I'm not doing anything bad because there's nothing good.
0: It's just it's just what it is. Yeah. And so uh Evola's uh what what, what's the content of his human because we're we're always talking about like there's always this image of the Mm -hmm. human as it was or as it should be that's being lost or needs to be proven um in all these in every religion and everything that we're talking about so in evola's Mm -hmm. kind of image like what is the what makes the man
1: um i would say the the short answer will be a trial makes the man so spiritual trial, spiritual quest makes the man. But what's interesting about Evola? Well, two things that kind of prove how how mistaken he was in interpreting those things. So wh- one of the biggest criticism he had for the Nazis was that, and in that sense, according to him, they were not right wing enough. It's because they were biologists. In his mind, talking about biological race was just as stupid. Biologically speaking, did not make sense, but also spiritually thing speaking did not make sense. And he wrote a lot about the nonsensical argument that being an Aryan had any biological validity. You know It was just, you know, it's just a term to define novelty. Oh. But to a big extent, he was very, he, he was considered an anti-Semite too, because in his mind, there were different moral characters according to races. So you cannot condone Ebola just because he was not a biological racist. He was a spiritual racist. And in that sense, he was just as bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, in comparison to everything around him, which was very much utilitarian, nihilistic materialist, he was one of the few within the right wing, because I think it's fair to define him as right wing, a thinker that never believed there was anything, biologically speaking, valid to claim that there was this race that was superior to the other one, hmm. at the very least. So what makes a human a human? Well, the spiritual core, the spiritual hierarchy. Yeah. Now, a thing you might find interesting is that and this, I think, is relevant to to the conversation, because okay, but so what are the components of a human being? Well, in that sense, he was very much traditionalist, back to not just Aristotle, but you know, to Moshé Ben Baimon in, in Judaism, and and to Avicenna in, in in Islam, and all the way back to Socrates and Plato and whatnot. So he viewed there is a European spirituality and a non-European spirituality. The European spirituality is pretty much the Indo-European spirituality. So Hinduism, Buddhism, ancient paganism, the Roman gods, the Greek gods, and then you have a non-European spirituality, which can, can be Taoistic, can be Semitic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So Judaism, for instance, is in non-Indo-European, the Roman gods are. Now, here's the mistake. Um, the mistake is to assume that they are completely different and separated. There's no overlap between Indo-European culture, which is, you know... Um, easy to prove false. The second mistake is to confuse and confound linguistics with ethnicity and culture. Example, during the British domination, I would say that the official language throughout the Indian subcontinent was English. Think about us, you know, I'm speaking English, but I'm not ethnoculturally English or British for that matter. So that is also a mistake. And the other thing is also to ignore, I think purposely so, how much overlap there is in modern? By modern, I mean in the last three thousand years history of religion. Example: Not many people, <laughs> I, I would assume, yeah. on this side of the ocean, know that the Buddha is a saint in Roman Catholicism. Buddha is, yes. um, and so um, and so. So, and he's also a saint in, in uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, um, um, and um, so in terms of what makes a human a human, it's, it's his spiritual element. So his spirit, his soul, and then of course the body. But in the biggest thing of things, the body is really what carries the soul. So it's valuable as a result of that. Yeah. So whatever productivity the body does, it's not really that relevant. So that's kind of the anti-transhumanistic version of things. So yeah, sure, the computer will be much better at performing every task but at the end of the day it does not matter
0: because it doesn't have a soul or a spirit correct of any Correct. quality will there will there yeah. ever be so, an ai so, that the catholic church, catholic church so um, so, so let, let, let's separate these two insanehood. things
1: though because because soul and spirit are very very distinct so uh, and again this this really depends on what theological form you take but you could say, so aside from the etymology, but one thing that we might want to debate is, that okay, it's whatever you want to call it, the transcendental element. Is that, first of all, eternal, will we'll, we'll survive biological death, and B, is it personal, or it just diffuses you know, once you die? In other words, will I remember myself with my memories? So in that sense, I would say that computers outperform human beings even in that area. Once you have a file, you put it on the Internet stays there literally forever, even if you destroy the matter that created in the first place. You have a JPEG or an MP4 video, you might be able to see the video, but the data is still there forever. You can copy it, you can do whatever you want. So yeah. in that sense, computers and AI do indeed possess a soul if you want to define soul with, with, that, with that thing. Yeah. I don't buy it at all, the fact that you can make the comparison, because, well, even for the simple reason that someone has to access the soul in, in that sense. Uh, it, you cannot project a video unless you have a screen of some sort. So you have the data, but to make the data usable, you need to have some sort of interface. Also, the computer did not create that for itself. And even if you want to say, well, yeah, now, but in only five, 10 years from now, computers are pretty much self-managing themselves, sure. But the algorithm was still created at first, at least by you know by Adam. By, uh, a different form of, of knowledge so yeah. no i don't i don't believe that i don't believe that ai constitutes a threat in that sense in in, in any way
0: in uh in what way specifically uh of...
1: I, I, I i don't think the machines will take over the world anytime soon ever okay,
0: okay um. um so uh uh go back just a bit um of all the, split religions into European and non-European what, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm, w- mm-hmm. for whatever reason he was wrong or right. What was his like, what was the category that he was shaping? What was he saying about this set of religions and this other set of religions? Like, were okay. there certain <clears throat> assumptions within this European yeah, religion? Absolutely. And what, What's the core that he was using to organize everything? Around? Yeah.
1: So he, uh, he, and again, it's a long story, but, Heroism would probably be the, the category. Indo European religions are heroic religions. Okay. Yep. And Semitic religions, with the big exception of Islam, though. And I'll I'll explain on that. Hmm. Um, uh, so he, he was had a lot of disdain for Catholicism. Well not Catholicism itself, but okay, let, let me answer one question first because I get lost otherwise. Uh, so Indo-European religion heroic, as in the way to get closer to God or the gods was by displaying an heroic militaristic virtue. You go to Valhalla if you are still standing in battle or if you are killed in battle, but you don't refuse to fight. You never, you know, show the other cheek in, in the European okay. You either kill or you must be killed. That's the way to uh, approach God. It's not condoning violence, it's self-sacrifice. Yeah. In his view, which, again, is also historically inaccurate, there is no such thing as self-sacrifice in in Christianity or Judaism all those martyrs that decided to self-sacrifice uh, for their faith against the will of the emperor were just dumb, <laughs> his view. Um, so heroism defines two things, um, which again, it's. I mean, aside from I- ignoring all the the the, the, the Jewish tradition of, of the kings of the battles of David, you know, the whole Talmud really, uh, yeah. which plenty of battles, you know, and bloodshed if you, if you want to. So. I would say that it's much more similar to the, the Roman or the, the Scandinavian counterpart, but also the, the other mistake. He made, several mistakes. The other mistake is to, to claim that one is older than the other one. That Europeans are much much older than anything that you know came from the Middle East. Well, based on our current knowledge, we all yeah. came from the same core. I mean, the, 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 kind of it's a, it's a non sequitur for that. Um, and there are a few other mistakes.
0: Um, but w- so was it, was it his disdain for this so-called non-European religion was that he had an anxiety about like the weakening of man or the weakening yes. of this heroic? Yes, yes, and, yes. And with that stated, is that what he was seeing happening, uh, that everything in the modern life was eroding the strength of the heroism of man and there's no yes, returning yes. To, to... Yes, he, he,
1: he viewed... He viewed the Soviet Union and the United States as the epitome of this fall of the modern world. Okay. They, they claim to be coming from opposite ends, but they're both materialists. They both reject God, um, as in the Soviet Union rejected God to make the humanism become the new communist man, so to speak, you know, the so proletariat. Like, and,
0: and he disliked the uh, communist man because it was just the uh, same. There was this this kind of disapparated everybody's just a part of community Correct. there's no individual there there's no heroes hero, everybody's Correct. bogged down in bureaucracy and following orders yes. and yes. nobody has a chance to, to stand up or stand out because Correct. That, that would yes. be anti uh communist and in practice yes. yes and then from the u.s point of view this materialistic he uh, called what, them
1: plutonians on. so obsessed with money and money it's again materialistic so, you know, um, he considered, well, yeah, there are just two different variations of the same corrupting element. Um, and in his view, the corrupting element entered Europe through the Middle East, which I guess is a yeah. big claim to make. Yeah. Uh, but but you could see in his, you know, distorted view how, how that has an inner consistency, right? Yeah. Europe is a la- Europe or India or Tibet, really, is the last stronghold of the old tradition, the primeval tradition. No. So the tradition that was not corrupted starting 4,000 years ago, and then everything else is encroaching to make us weak. And no, not just that, but we praise weakness, you know. We say, you know, turn your cheek and love your enemy. Yeah. It's completely bogus. Forgive. Which again, it, it's Forget. forgive, which is yeah. also BS. Because there are plenty of uh, you know examples. Like the, the Roman virtus, okay, the virtue in the Roman, which is one of the basic elements of both the theology and the liturgy of the Roman religion, Virtus can be translated as virtue, uh, but it's it's a compound of forgiveness, very very similar to the Christian forgiveness, as well as virility. The term V I R means man, virility means also, etymologically speaking, um, the, the the tree of life, but also means to forgive. So, very, very similar. you know. To, to claim that the Romans were all about conquering and not forgiving is, is, is just not true, theologically speaking. Yeah. The Roman army, the Roman constitution, sure, the state, but the Roman religion was not that different, in fact. Huh. And the same can be said about, let's say, Germanic paganism. You, you have Thor, of course, you have Odin, you have Loki, but you have Baldur. And Baldur, it's, 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 you could say, is the, <laughs> the Nordic Christ, for like a
0: better term. What was his um, message or his act? It's
1: it, it's it's very very similar to to Jesus's one. Um, again, here, here's what and I'm not doing. I'm not doing what a lot of very poorly theologically um, grounded people might say. Well, you know, Christianity are just you know reinvention of paganism. No, 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 not okay. at all. Okay. It, the similarities are not there because one took over the other, but because they're based on the same archetype. They're, they're true no matter what hmm. and it doesn't make sense that, to claim that one's an evolution and the other one because that will assume that there is a linear time in catholicism for instance we say well J- jesus was but he was at the beginning of time yeah. you know so the, the fact that he was incarnating the christ happened at a very specific time in history
0: yeah
1: but his ontological nature of existence predates history so to say well you know you 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 adjusted christmas to you know, fit into the, the Saturnala. Well, yeah. sure. And so, what you're trying to prove here? our religions assume that, they, that for instance, if, if you if you ever travel in my hometown, okay. So we have we have the modern monastery that's about I don't know 800, 900 years old. But before that monastery, there was an older monastery. It's about two thousand years old. And before that, there was you know a Roman temple a redic temple. So uh, this idea of Juxtaposing Middle Eastern religion to European, you know, spirituality—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a very modern thing to do, which I think stands for two things. One is the remnant of humanism, reducing everything to a psychologized version of of notion we, hmm. we made up the image of God, and the yeah. other thing is is a byproduct of nationalism in mid eighteen hundred Europe. So. You're Italian, you believe in the Italian God. You're German, you believe in the German God. You're Jewish, you believe in the Jewish God. Y- yes, but that doesn't make sense, historically speaking. You know, yeah. Too com- confusing, too just Well, okay.
0: Equating or not equating or improperly equating Balder to Christ aside, what was Balder's mm. uh, act or uh, the message that he was bringing
1: into the, he he the... you could say that he was the forgiver he was bringing okay. peace and forgiveness and love I would say for okay. the most part and is he, is the arch, arch, archetypical opposite of Loki a lot of people compare Balder and Thor sorry Loki and Thor uh, but but Hollywood aside I think that the best analogy would be between Balder uh, and um
0: and Loki Loki when being the, trickster, the, yeah, the, the trickster, trickster yeah the yeah. trickster yeah yeah correct correct. Yes. Going back to Job, there, so that kind of that archetype. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, okay. yes, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And before we leave, I keep on want to say Ebola, and I have to stop myself. Ebola, <laughs> um, <laughs> Islam, uh, the heroic. Oh, yeah. What did he see in Islam yeah, as yeah. the heroic ar- archetyper?
1: Yeah. So that's another problem here, and um, and and I think it's it's fair enough to for me to speak about that. I, I think I mentioned to you that some of my. Um, My uh, wife's family is Muslim, so I had the privilege to to learn quite a bit about that. So I'm not just speaking, you know, out of of hearsay. I hope again, I'm not a theologian, but so there are two things about 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 that period. First of all, um, in the in the specific time frame, uh, there was there was a lot of um, tension for what eventually became the conflict between Palestinians. Israelis. We're talking about World War II, right? So, Israel as a state did not exist, but the, the anti-Semitic, you know, right-wing races was definitely there throughout Europe. Um, and so, for the right or wrong reasons, and by right and wrong, I don't mean morally, but in terms of interpretation, what they think they were doing, yeah. Islam was perceived as the rightful evolution of paganism the, started to liberate itself from the dust of the desert. Huh. So there was more heroism in Islam. There was, in in, in, in other words, the, the main thing is that well, Je, who who was Jesus if you are not a believer? Well, perhaps a son of a carpenter. You know, maybe a good you know philosopher, but he was definitely not a warrior. You know, sure you have some elements here and there in the destruction of the temple. You know, you get yeah. you know, mad. Like, and, you I know, come but,
0: bringing a sword, kind
1: of. Right, right, yeah, sure, yes. The, 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 and by the way, this is also ignorance because a whole, you know, monastic tradition of Christ the King, Christ the Savior is very heroic. So to, to claim that. But thinking of a warrior is not the first attributes that one would usually attribute to Christ versus Muhammad was, was definitely a warrior. And so that fitted in this kind of distorted notion of continuation of paganism. And on top of that, since the Allies were more prone to de- rightfully defend the rights of Jews in Europe, well, what is left for Hitler and Mussolini was to embrace the other part. And so Mussolini became the, the – the, you can't find it. I don't remember how to translate that in English correctly, but he was the the defend, defender of Islam in the world. He, he, he was given the sword of Islam. If you just, if you just Google it, Mussolini, oh, really? the sword of Islam. Yeah.
0: Really? So he was – Like the, he, he, he was, attributed that to himself or he was given that no, – No, no, no.
1: He was given that. He was given that. But – was the first king to give to him but anyway he was representative of of the Muslim tradition in the Middle East um, because of these similarities and again interesting I really don't know how to, to make this thing together it's a historical fact which was eventually used I don't know if, if fully if there was an awareness of that or not by people like um, Evelyn to say that well yes sure there is an evolution, and Islam is still a religion of the book, but at the same time, it's more heroic than those Catholics or Jews okay. that are, you know, just weak. There's more of a heroic component in Islam than there and, is in Christianity or. And or Christianity.
0: from Evola's point of view, why was Mussolini not far right enough? Like, what was Mussolini's like failure? Well, there there, there there are,
1: there are personal reasons. Seemingly and, uh,
0: impossible standard it seems like.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, and there's a lot of things, and again.
0: Uh,
1: one, one ought not to badmouth someone who, whom he never met in person, but there is this big, you know, debate whether Evola was a real nobleman or not. Whether his noble title were just made up because yeah. it, it's, you know, anyway. Yeah. One of the reasons that because Mussolini had, I mean, he he had, you know, quite a bit of preferences for a certain aspect of uh, Judaism um, <laughs> that Evola despised. Uh, And aside aside from a personal reason, his uh, mistress was Jewish as well. Um, And again, uh, one of the difference between Mussolini and Hitler was that Mussolini, well, Hitler attempted to reason using his really (laughs) troublesome brain. I don't think Mussolini even attempted it. Mussolini really reasoned with an organ much lower in the body. Oh yeah. And so I think he, and that's that's kind of a stereotype, but, uh, you know, that's the primary thing. So who cares about it didn't make sense to think about races you know if someone is hot it's hard man yeah, yeah pretty much the okay just yeah. the, the, okay. the
0: machismo the just the yeah pure, yeah absolutely absolutely w- which
1: doesn't justify at all what what happened in Italy afterwards with the with the racial laws but to be fair a lot of the etalkim the Italian Jews were very fond of fascism at first because fascism appeared to be doing what what uh a healthy secularized society ought to do. So not separating people in classes based on their religion, getting rid of the overarching power of the Vatican, giving everybody a chance, including Jews and and, and other atheists and agnostics. Hmm. And so I think to some extent they were fooling to that. And so Ebola, you know, said, well, if you do that, that you're not really, you know, a man enough, man enough.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. But um, so from a certain point of view, fascism uh, appeared at a s- before it uh, blossomed to be uh, kind of egalitarian and elitist so that it would allow for <clears> circulation of the elites. It would bring things more back to meritocratic standards of judgment that, that's a, and reward I mean, in society.
1: Okay. <laughs> meritocracy by being beaten up, it's its a big statement to make. Yeah. It was like, I will I'll force my meritocracy on you. Otherwise you're gonna be beaten up. That's thats really <laughs> a big statement to make. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> But at least, you know, superficially speaking, Mussolini indeed was a socialist, um, and he started his career actually in Tyrol, where I'm from, when Tyrol was still part of the Austrian Empire, and 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 he 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 refused actually to it's kind of funny he refused to be um, uh, enlisted in the Italian army, escaped to Switzerland, so mm-hmm. he wasn't really yeah he he never he never enlisted. Eventually, later on, you know, he took part in some battles and got hurt. But you know he was not. He was definitely a socialist. So at least on paper, he appeared to, um, to to appeal to this need for egalitarianism. And the other thing, which is really important, is that until that time, there was no conflict between one's feeling of European pride, even nationalistic pride, and being Jewish. There was not contrast between the, since you know the Aryan concepts and mythology did not exist. Yeah. Nobody really seriously believed in that. There was no conflict in identifying oneself as a, a proud Italian, proud heirs of the Roman Empire, the Roman gods, while going to the synagogue. It was not okay, you know. The Italian Jewish community is one of the oldest in the world, you know, before the destruction of the temple in Rome. So, as you can see, so, yeah, 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 they were, they, you know, they're one of the oldest. So it's it's, it's so it's, see that this that the, the political stupidity of that as well to try to enforce racial laws like, dude what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Um but you can see how the whole mystique was appealing and um and a lot of people were were, were I don't know in, in, in shock I would say.
0: When it oh. began to become authoritarian, uh the fascism specifically I think, where that, it was I think in the authoritarian pose. part
1: was always there. Was always there. Um you know um the people people wanted
0: at that at a certain time. I, don't we turn to that as political bodies during certain times of unrest? Or is uh, the usual
1: saying: strong people make good time, good time make weak people, weak people create bad times. Yeah, it's the usual thing.
0: Yeah. Okay, so going way back to another part of the conversation. We were talking about Catholicism and I, I kind of shared a mystical experience. Uh, yes. Right. Uh, so from your point of view as a neurobiologist. Um, neuroscientist. Neuroscientist. But anyway, that, that, yeah, yeah. Is the So there's a difference for me in my thinking of between like faith and belief and spiritual experience. And I think they're all necessary components to even something out and to, well, like spiritual experience for me is the core of, you know, spirituality is the core of religion, but religion Mm -hmm. uh, takes that spirituality and uh, makes it social. So it brings in the whole human and then Mm -hmm. it also makes it, uh, you know, through a belief structure, it makes it, uh, kind of like a worldview. So I'm living within kind of a significant life. My life has significance. So the spiritual experience is brief, it's bright, but it needs to be concretized. It can't happen all the time. It needs to be related Mm -hmm. and, you know, and then the religion helps with that and then also forms a community, um, and then I don't want to like just, I guess, and then faith is faith is the practice and the returning, uh, the, the internal practice of exercising and perfecting myself in relationship to the religious understanding and then the spiritual experience, um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, how I feel in the world and, and all of that. So from a, neuroscientist point of view mm. I just wanted to get into the conversation of your belief or how we can use the tools that you've discovered and you know or the, the insights and the knowledge that you have to inform ourselves about you know faith belief spirituality and mm-hmm. that whole domain and then I guess we can pl- kind of plug that into the conversation because we've always been talking about the human And these different kind of versions of what a human is through all these different thinkers and movements. So, you know, I'm assuming that speaking about neuroscience and spirituality Mm -hmm. would kind of give us or help us formulate what a human is. Yeah, I
1: I, I shall hope so. So I don't waste my career finding things that are not
0: relevant. (laughs) So, okay. So, yeah. But that is really interesting. So... Neuroscience is kind of a pursuit, a meaningful pursuit, or part of your search for meaning yeah. in, in a yes. broader That's sense true. than just a career or something you find fascinating. Mm-hmm. But this yeah. is a meaningful endeavor for you, or almost a spiritual, or religious yeah. endeavor. Like it's part of, yeah, that. okay,
1: yes, yeah. It's the it's the usual saying, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists um, are want to be priests, rabbis, or imams, you know, uh, yeah. and and. In that sense, I'm lucky because I get to do the research, so spending time in the lab and do the neuroscience research, but I'm also a clinician. So as a psychologist, I can talk to people. Uh, And I I think that keeps my balance to some extent, Um, because if I were just to talk to people and not have enough time to spend researching whether what I'm preaching is true, then I'll feel I'll be on shaky grounds. And conversely, if I only spend time in the lab, but you couldn't see the direct application of what I'm finding. Then I said, "What's the point?" Besides, you know, again, pride, which is hmm. it's a sin, man. Hmm. Um, so, so here's the thing. Um, to answer your question, yes, I feel this is my calling, and I feel that I'm to the best of, you know, my knowledge, I'm doing what, what I'm what I'm supposed to do. And, and this feels good because I can incorporate some of the bad traits of being human. So. Uh it's better to acknowledge our weaknesses and our sinful nature as in, could I claim that I'm completely detached from the needs of appreciation? No. But between receiving a like on Facebook and having a citation on, let's say, academia, the second one at least has some sort of meaning for others. So that's how I justify myself. So being praised for things that are, I would say, intrinsically good is better than being praised for the sake of being praised. Okay. Uh, it's still not the optimal thing, you know, that you should always try for a more humble self and reduce your yeah. ego need for praise. But in the end of so yeah. that-
0: Well, I mean, the so. praise is a signifier of doing something useful or contributing yes. in a meaningful way. Is, yes. Know, yes. You know, the, the good so,
1: feedback. No. Absolutely. Now I, I'm lucky, and I say that with a, you know kind of an open heart that the things I'm, I'm researching provide more and more. Let me use a term: proof for the existence of God than the opposite. Now, it, this statement is only partially true. I don't think that there's ever going to be any scientific full proof of the existence of God of the afterlife. There are different magisteria, different ways to approach reality. But in my view, what I'm studying makes me makes my belief more likely to be based on truth than otherwise. Um and, and that's a comforting thing. Um and I think I mentioned to you before that um I went you know through different stages in my belief toward a completely disbelief, unbelief, and, yeah. and and so science brought me back to faith, maybe put it that way. Hmm. And I would say that there are several reasons for that. Um but to keep the conversation short, I would say two main areas. One is the clinical area, and the other one is just the lab area. Starting with the lab area, there's tons of scientific evidence, for instance, on brain activity when a person is meditating or praying. And one of the most fascinating things is that processes occur that are usually perceived to be opposite. So um, in everyday, conceptual awareness you you're like a dslr camera so you can either zoom in or zoom out so the more you zoom out the better you are is the pattern of the panorama and the more you zoom in the more you are focused on the detail all right so in general you could say that if you are drinking coffee you can be, I mean, in the absence of other, you know, pathologists, if you drink coffee, you're very focused on the detail. You're you're task-oriented, you get to the point. If instead you're drinking alcohol, you're more relaxed and you might see things more, you know, in general, but you you miss the detail, okay? Yeah. And this this is a metaphor, of course, but from a scientific standpoint, there are neural areas in the brain that are more focused on kind of focusing the detail, understanding the rationality, and, and putting things in order, and calculating them. And, that, and those things are usually in the cortex, the prefrontal cortex, especially. And there are things that are more heartfelt, you'd say. They're more, you know, in, I wouldn't say instinctual, although those parts of the brain are also the first ones to be developed. So it, it makes sense from a perspective of neuro, neurobiology of development. If a person prays or meditates, those two areas are fully combined. So you are in a dream-like state where your dreams are not less cognitively focused or precise, or are even more enhanced in their precision, and yet they're more holistically huh. tolerant and open-minded, which is a fascinating thing. Huh. Um, and, and so this is just one area that it, I find fascinating So,
0: and and again, so human beings somehow developed this thing that we call prayer meditation. Um, And maybe we can do the evolutionary argument that the societies that stumbled upon these practices Mm -hmm. were able to get a little bit more ahead or that led to, you know, greater developments Mm. or Mm. something like that. There was something useful. There's something useful about this thing we call prayer and meditation. But it came about, it's something you do intentionally. It's something that you teach your children, right? I, I guess maybe mm. we can find it in the wild. I, I guess if you just had a kid and the kid mm-hmm, does mm-hmm. that state, or maybe the brain in its development at certain times, is just always in a prayerful state. Who knows? I don't know. Um, but what is that thing called prayer? Like what is that? It, mm. Is it, it's an intentional act that we do um, where we're focusing our attention in a certain way or on certain things in order to achieve a certain kind of brain phase, right? So what what is that? What is prayer? Like when, when in the lab, how do you guys study that? Like you tell mm-hmm. somebody to do this thing or they've learned this thing that they do. Like what is that thing that they're doing? Why? What is it cognitively, intentionally that we do that we unlock, uh, unlock or access that brain state?
1: All right. Let me just start by saying that the premise that you attribute to an evolutionary biology perspective is in itself wrong. Oh, good. And, uh, or at least this interpretation is wrong. So, th- what is wrong? To assume that one day, you know, humanity stumbled upon meditation or prayer and they found it useful, just as they stumble upon fire or, you know, the wheel, and they put it into action, they figure out, well, this is more helpful than not. Well, to make that statement, I've of the fact that the least you can do is being humble enough to say, well, I don't know if what came first. Maybe, maybe meditation can be before man, as in human, you know, you don't know. Hmm. Maybe prayer existed independently of a physical body. But even if you don't want to go that route, which is more mystical and esoteric, you could say, well, for the vast majority of our history, we did not have a writing system or a language as we construct today. Does that mean that we were not functional, but we'd not be here if previous generation did not function, at least well enough? So it might be likely that what we interpret as prayer nowadays, it's very different from what we greater was back in the days. And to a very big extent, you can even make the argument that singing was a higher version than speaking, the same way as reading is a higher version than writing. Now these things are the opposite. Even the Romans used to say, well, scripta manent verba volent. What is written will stay. What is spoken might just disappear. And that's why they were so obsessed in recording everything, it's just written. Mm. But nowadays we know how That makes sense back in the days, but with all social media now, just because someone is repeating things, it doesn't add any value to truth. So it it might be possible—this is just a hypothesis, of course—that prayer and meditation preceded our more refined cognitive, literal skills, not because they were primitive, but because they were better and closer to the truth, as if— Metaphorically speaking, they were a fire that eventually progressively becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And now we only have the memory of how warm it was.
0: Huh. So okay, it so to, to try to concretize that by just telling us just-so story... Are you saying that maybe human beings were always in a state of prayer, and then they kind of became more and more cognitively developed, and then more it, it, and more, uh, less and less in that prayer for state? And the things that we call prayer now are remnants of returning to this pre-homo
1: sapiens. Yes, that will be consistent to the way the brain develops. <laughs> you, you develop the prayer brain before you develop the cognitive brain, at least, you know, developmentally speaking. Yeah. Um, but... Um, and by that, I do not mean that you're able physically to produce a prayer before you're able to produce speech. That's not true, of course. Okay. But the things that usually we attribute to the state of meditation, prayer, happens develop- developmentally speaking before the rest. So our idea that what comes after it's better than what came first, it's also a very humanistic idea, Okay. that the newest thing is in itself good, just because it's new. So I'll be careful with that. The opposite claim is also problematic to say, well, that means that we just Get rid of our cognition and just feel. Okay. No, nope. yeah. that, that's really no. In terms of what prayer is at the neurological level, how we investigate that, we investigate that with the usual methods, okay? Uh, simply because we don't have new ones yet. <laughs> uh, so um, the most common ones are the usual brain imaging methods fMRIs, so functional magnetic resonance imaging, SPECT, single positron emission chromatography, uh, CT scans, uh, PET, all of those and depending which methodology you use you can either monitor oxygenation and in neuroscience we it, there's an equivalency of of uh, judgment of, of value between how much oxygen a part of the brain receives and how much functional or active that part of the brain okay. is in yeah. other words no oxygen no. you're, you're so. reading
0: like the receipts like how much uh correct you know, how yes. much correct. This, this thing is functioning because it's asking for a lot of this you know, correct currency yes. Yes.
1: yes okay exactly precisely precisely of course this is still an assumption but you know, in the absence of better proof, it's a pretty fair assumption and it actually it's, it's really waterproof in many other areas. So if I'm speaking, I can totally see this part of the brain like up. If you're speaking to me, I can totally see this brain like nap. So either everything it's like total chance, well, at what point you just reduce chance to zero you know it's like it's really hard to make the opposite argument, yeah, which is also part of my my reason for my belief. Sure, you don't have any scientific proof that God exists but like you're getting very darn close to it. Okay.
0: Well, um, or not even that god exists, but that human beings in a spiritual state are optimal or are optimizing yes. themselves?
1: Yes. Thank you. That was the second part of, of my Becoming more my, my aware, mind. So, more
0: alive, more able, yes. more, more plugged into the world, more uh, participating in, in experience and more able to, yes. to process what's going on and process reality. It, and then even leading just, to it, being more empathetic and uh, able to, to feel and help other people in, in a way, just better people.
1: So, th- so that was the second part of my argument. In the lab, you could already see that what we believe kind of makes sense. And by makes sense, it makes the neural mechanism better, more functional, faster, more holistically, better communicating with one another. Is that a proof? No, but it definitely works well. And then you transfer that in a discussion with a, with a patient, oh, in yeah. psychotherapy, for instance, okay. and you can make it, well, you know, you're just, you're just pretending to do something so that person feels better. Sure, but at which point, having the proof that what you're saying makes the person feel better ceases to be just pretending and becomes the truth? And I want to give you an example. So I could say to a person who feels suicidal. well, um, So this is, I think, a good example of the risk of becoming either nihilistic, materialistic on one side, or too sentimentalist on the other side. A person comes to me and this person is suicidal. And my reply to this person is, don't you worry, you're a good person, you deserve to survive, you deserve deserve to have a fulfilling life, please don't do that, okay? This feels good, it might lead to a positive outcome the person might refrain from contemplating suicide. Up until the moment when the person realizes, wait a second, does he say this to everybody? How does he even know me? How does he know that I'm actually worthy? Yeah.'" And, and that is even worse because it's better to suspend judgment because otherwise it feels like I'm embellishing things and the same thing as I'm you know, going to a grocery store and a cashier asks you how you're doing but they don't really care, unless this is based on truth. And of course, the truth cannot come from myself. I do, I do believe that every human person is worthy, no exception whatsoever. But I also believe that there's work to do, mm-hmm. uh, and this is a very big minefield that kind of separates psychotherapy. Because in psychotherapy, you should make the assumption everybody is able to become a better version of themselves. Okay. Because otherwise, why would bother? Yeah. In in any case, you know. Uh, So there are people that are better now, but you you at least should believe that the person has potential. Okay? But after that, the biggest issue is a theological one. (laughs) Hmm. Is it once saved, always saved, or you need to put some work into it? In the absence, I mean, I do have my own system of belief, of course, but to be holistically receptive to all perspective, I want to believe that the work we put in makes a difference because it does make a difference in every other branch of medicine. As in, there are people that are just born ripped and very healthy and strong. There are people that are not. But if you put some work into it, by like physical exercise, then you will ameliorate. So I do believe that this works for the soul as well. You need to do some soul work too. Yeah. Yeah. And if this work is, you know, there's corroboration, if not for the proof in neuroscience, then I think it's the right thing to do. It works. It makes things better. It makes sense. And, and I think that's enough of the uh, push
0: to pursue yeah. that. The uh, A couple of times well, off camera after having spoken with somebody uh, who's experienced a lot of trauma, has really hard yeah. life. Um and my my role is not a psychologist. I'm I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'm kind of I'm creating content. This is You're the most doing a fun. lot of good. Tell you that. But but the the practice I don't have like a series of techniques. I'm just seeking mm, good mm-hmm, conversation. Mm-hmm. Like yes. Overall, this is not a psych psychological office or anything like that. But you know when I get into a conversation and I hear the heart. Uh, and the soul, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, just the experience of somebody, um, a couple of times, like afterwards, like I can tell that this person needs to hear that they are loved. Right. I, the, like yeah. you are loved and, and sometimes I can use the word God loves you or that. Yeah. And I try to not use the word God. Like there is a force that created all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, that that it suffuses every aspect of life and it is inside of you and outside of you. It's closer to you than your, your hearing and your yeah. sound. It's this indwelling thing and you are loved. Right. Um, and, and I've said that to a couple of people who I hear need to say that now, I don't think that they're suicidal or anything, but that they are, you know, metaphorically lost or they they've yeah. come to a place uh, you know, especially with the detransitioner population, like, wow, I I made these mistakes and this thing happened to me. I was basically chewed up and spit out by a bunch of assumptions by a bunch of people. I, you know, I've been completely betrayed <laughs> by everybody in my life, you know, you, mm-hmm. and you see people in that state and and you, I just, I want to say that to them. And, and I, I don't, I'm trying to say that that's not a lie and it's not a performance and I don't do that yeah. on camera, right? Like, that is, uh-huh. that's that's yes. different. Maybe I've done that on camera because I have to. Like, I, I just feel that that's the proper thing yes. to do. But it's not a part of the performance. So even though I'm doing something in my work that's very public and it's content and, you know, it's a living um, and it's a performance and, you know... A bunch of different strangers from a bunch of different walks of life can do a bunch of different things and in interpreting this, mm-hmm. cutting it up, and and uh, making judgments on on me and the people people that I'm explaining to. Um, so I I want I, when I say that off camera, it's because I I don't want it to be reduced to something that I'm performing or that can be perceived as being uh-huh. performed. Um, but yeah. that person needs to hear that, and even if I do perform that on camera, it's because other people need to hear that being said to other people like people need to see that this is something that is important for one human being to say to another and for Mm -hmm. one person to realize about themselves that they are loved they are important or valuable but i think that loved is is i don't know i don't want to argue over words or anything like that so sorry to riff i'm just trying to put myself in the position of you as a psychologist saying that you are worthy you are in love and then how does religion uh, so because there has to be like a feel you you said that there's a theological aspect to it there's a reality that we're trying to say that's be underneath life and above life that that is important for human beings to understand especially the people who are lost and who are at the end of their rope
1: the answer is and i think i mentioned before religion or god i'll put these two together for the sake of conversation is like fire a bright light if you give everything at once you're going to get burned. It's extremely dangerous. And that's a problem with cults and gurus, pseudo gurus. I'm I'm using gurus in the Western sense. Because when people are more vulnerable, they are vulnerable to be swallowed by cults. Easy way out of all sorts, religious cults especially. And that's why I'm especially, Mm. I would say, afraid of the religious extremist. But the same can be said about certain social justice movements and political movements. If you're weak, you're more easily to be, you know, um, swallowed alive by them because they give you meaning, purpose, yeah. and to some extent, revenge uh. against life um, or whatever. Whatever you assume to be your Bad enemy, guess, exactly yeah. what you said earlier. You know, you should really focus on yourself because if once you start to focus only on how the world is to be changed, you miss the point. You need to work on yourself first. So the metaphor of being burned is, well, aside from the ethics of it, I will never reveal upfront my own system of belief, I will never preach to anybody, it's definitely not part of my profession. But you also be a dangerous thing to do, which will make therapy not valuable, because a person comes to me in the hope, I hope justified to find someone who is first and foremost, a, a good listener not someone who will tell me what to do. And yet, once the problem is out there, they also hope to find a person who will not tiptoe around the problem and, quote-unquote, tell in my clinical experience and expertise what the best thing is to do. So I, as much as I refrain from making sense as do A, B, C, and D, and God will save you or something like that, Yeah, I will also refrain from saying, well, the usual, right? Well, as long as it makes you feel good, it must be good for you. Yeah, So I've tried to find it in between things. Now, my practice, it will be a false statement for me to say that my religion does not inform my practice. It sure does. But I think it informs it in a way that it's not religious. As in... It's humanist? To, to, yes, enough. The, the classical example, I asked for permission, first of all. And it's part of the clinical assessment. You need to ask what the person's background and you know philosophy life is uh it's it's therapeutically reasonable to make that statement uh you want to find out what what makes them think on a daily basis you know (laughs) and based on that then i and and i adjust the way i talk to the person but not in a way to appeal to them or, or please them in a way that i think well let me not talk about the bible because they're atheists or let me talk about the bible all the time because they are religious no But 99.9% of the time, those questions will arise in the conversation. Most of my patients will come to a place where they ask about, okay, what's the meaning of life? What's my purpose here? Is there a God? Is there an afterlife? The vast majority, if not the totality of them.
0: Really? Yes. They go to to the theological eventually. If you talk to somebody enough and ask yes. l- allow them to keep yes. on asking questions They eventually get down Correct. to theological
1: it's it's not as ingenuous you know huh. I, I do use the so- socratic method as you do you, know, you ask questions yeah. uh, and that's where in that sense a good psychologist is you know similar to a confessor you always need to be careful not to ask questions for the sake of curiosity you always need to ask yourself why am i asking this question to this person in this sense, your role is very different than mine. Yeah, yeah. I'm not here to entertain the person. I'm not here to hmm, figure out quirks about the person. Every question needs to be focused on a goal. And that's where the big issue is. If your goals are predicated on <laughs> the good, the truth, and the beautiful, <laughs> then you might be able to do a good job. If they're predicated on things that are less than good, less than beautiful, less than true, then you might still have the person but you might be on shaky grounds. So in, a, in other words, can a good psychologist be an atheist? Yes, of course, because you can apply the exact same skills and you might be, in a, be a better psychologist because if, you're, if your clientele is atheist, they might feel less threatened or moralized. They don't yes. have that baggage. You know, yeah. baggage. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the fact that the skills are the same, the things are the same, is because they come from the same core. So if you think about positive psychology, which has nothing to do with new-agey yeah. positive... Yeah, it, it's it's more like, you know, it, it, there's a lot of religious background in positive psychology. Uh,
0: would, would it feels through, through... Positive psychology, just in brief, like, what, is, what do you mean by that? Like, we're trying so to make it, somebody it, better or what? Sh-
1: like- yeah, it's the assumption that people have ways to become better. That's the assumption. You don't make judgment up front. Um, and evolution from positive psychology you can find in... in um, uh, health coaching you can find in dbt dialectical behavioral therapy and a lot of things um but the assumption is well i'm working with you because i recognize something good beautiful and true in you this part that you don't see it yet
0: yeah and we're here to develop that in you yes the truth the, precisely. Good, the okay yeah yes precisely so yeah, yeah. Well, when i uh Sometimes when I interview psychologists and we talk about psychology, like ultimately I I have to ask, well, you're assuming something about the human being. Like what is that human being that you're working with? Mm -hmm. Um, Some people thought that through and some people haven't thought that through. And I don't think you need to think that through to be a good therapist. You know, you can just make these assumptions, but eventually you're going to have to wrangle with that. Yes. Um, Yes. Absolutely. Like for instance, if I'm working with sex offenders
1: or murderers, yeah. thieves. Whatever you want to say. Psychopaths. I said on the fact that we will we, we'll never use that label with anybody. But we don't use that not because we want to be politically correct, right, but because because words have have weight. Okay, and, and you don't want um, they, they already see that. You know, if they're in therapy, I'm sorry. They, they they see their the faulty elements. They see their sins, so to speak. Even if they're atheist, they see how messed up they are. They don't need another person to. To tell them that, but I also don't need another person to pretend that those things are not there. Oh, you just you're just a good person. Well, I did pretty terrible things. All right, so let's see what we can do with those. Yeah. But the assumption is that those things you did are not the truth, the good, and beauty are either a lack of that or are mistakes. And and this is going back to standard scholasticism, right? Aquinas, you know, what is evil? It's a total or partial absence of good. It does exist but it's not the same ontological category. Okay. Yeah. The, your, your ultimate truth is the good, and the fact that something encroaching you, it's similar to having some rust on on your mechanism. We need to get rid of the rust. You are not the rust.
0: Oh, well, okay. Um, I was talking to, I was speaking with uh, John Euler, uh, who works with sex offenders and, and victims of sex crimes, and yes. he has an idea that... Uh, I think kind of similar to you, but I think there's a difference here. This is why I bring him up Okay, that uh, people are born with a conscience and they, they make choices that can increase their conscience or decrease their conscience. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. process of sliding into even more and more sociopathic or pathological behaviors is kind of a movement towards selfishness. And at a a Mm -hmm. certain point, once a person's rid of their conscience and has rid themselves and killed that conscience that they don't even want to be good anymore. Why would I be good? Why would I have the feelings? Why would I care about anybody? I'm totally free mm-hmm. from caring about anybody. Um, so I, I bring that up cause I'm wondering in your estimation, are people so rusted that there's no soul left? Do mm-hmm. they, do they get to mm-hmm. a point where they are not save, salvageable or savable or?
1: Okay. 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 Or even want so, I, mean, I mean, I have a question just yeah. to make sure I understand you. So, so c- consciousness is something you're born with, but it can be progressively becoming less and less and less.
0: Well, as I, so I, I didn't or... really get that in. I didn't get into that because there's a lot of questions because, you know, anybody who's had a two-year-old or worked with two-year-olds knows that <laughs> they need to be. Yeah. And still, you need to teach them to not be selfish. Right. But, but oh, ultimately. all wrong
1: right. with my kids. Learning. Oh, really?
0: <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I think conscience is developed but like either we're good yeah, persons yeah. but it has to be developed like you were saying with the soul. Um this is yeah. something that we have to exercise and some people actually I've seen this in the playground some kids are more tending to be nicer and some people are yeah, kids yeah. are on the path towards being you know evil like like there yeah. are certain kids where if you give a stick they'll you know they'll draw with it or like maybe they'll sword fire it. yes other kids if you give them a stick they get a hold of a stick they will go over and and make sure that another kid cries like there are okay. kids who are yes. spun in yes. that direction and so you know like so some people start off like fit um spiritually and some people start off unfit spiritually and the process is to everybody has to do all that work so I'm just yeah. wondering yes. in the process of Psychotherapy or therapy—is um, there a point where a soul is beyond redemption? Where okay, right? Uh, where there's no turning back. And and yeah, we can go through this thing and we can talk about it. But I know that anything that I teach them in the psychological or the therapeutic context, they're going to turn even this into a weapon. They're going to every single thing uh-huh. that mm-hmm, that I'm mm-hmm, doing mm-hmm. here is not even helping them. It's just giving them more strategies to exert. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Ooh, there's so much to unpack here. Um,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> I would say yes. We'll stop. And let me explain. Um, so what well, the, the issue of getting more cognitive weapons that they can use to, I don't know, have other defense mechanism or do more evil, that applies to all of us. You know, that's the usual thing. In, in research, the smarter you are, the better you are cherry picking your data. It's, it's just something huh. that we have. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but it also makes us, you know, again, it's the, the, the hero in us. You know that we are faulty that we you know that we are temptable <laughs> there are temptation there there are shortcuts do your best not to do that um don't cherry pick you know try to do your best to still trust the peer review process try try your best so th- that's the first thing there's always a risk okay um and and, there, and, and there, by the way there are very solid diagnostic tools to detect where that person comes from so uh, okay. to give an example certain assumptions within I know, cluster B personality traits, uh, and, and individuals, you know, that, that do diagnostic speaking belong to the cluster B are either narcissists or, or uh, um, borderline, etc, are more prone to use some of your own words as a therapist, as a psychologist, as a doctor, to their own advantage, so there, there might be staff splitting, well, the nurse told me this, but you are better.
0: Yeah.
1: And so you, you don't assume that to be just a part of their personality, you assume that to be an evil element that we need to work with so they can get rid of it, but you're just more prepared, diagnostically speaking. So that's one thing.
0: Yeah.
1: In terms of the the consciousness that can be either reduced or corrupted, that sounds very much similar to certain elements in in Mazdaism or Zoroastrianism, where consciousness is like a burning flame. And so, yes. Going back to what we said about prayer, you want to keep the flame burning because the further away, the colder you get. But then because you see the need of warmth, you're going to make up a flame that it's a, hmm. it's a fake idol of mm-hmm. the regional one. Yeah. So how does that translate in practice? Um, yes, I would say that both extremes are uh, ontologically wrong to claim that everybody is good and everybody's bad. bad. Okay? The the debate between, let's say, uh, I don't know, the the good savage and Rousseau and Voltaire, right, that debate, to think that, so are children born good and then society corrupts them yeah. or events corrupts them or are they just evil and we can do our best to make them less evil as we grow? Well, yeah. if you ask me this question as 3.47 p.m. Eastern time, it's one thing. If you ask me that when they keep me up all night, <laughs> I might give you a different answer. <laughs> but I do believe that, so, so this is the anthropology of man. And this is how my version of the anthropology of man significantly differs from transhumanism. I do believe that human beings are made in the image of liking of God. If they messed up, it's because they stray away from that image. So I will never interpret a quote-unquote, a bad behavior as yet another behavior, yet another way to exist. Yeah. As a neurodiversity of behavior. No, their behaviors are bad. There are some very solidly scientifically-based universals in what's good and what's bad. Behavior. To claim them more, yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. So to claim that, well, you know, b- behaviors are good and bad simply because on the way they're constructed in society, maybe 20% of that, okay. I don't know, smaller things, um, you know, eye contact might differ. Uh, you know, yeah. close to right. Exactly. But, you know, killing someone for the sake of Killing as a pleasure or revenge—it's—it's—it's it's, it's universally bad, and the brain perceives that as bad. The brain—you can see that in neuroscience—comes up with solution to repress the truth of the fact that what you did is horrible, and in that sense, it's pathology as well. So, oh. if you think about extreme cases of uh, psychopathology and, and sociopathic behavior, there's a clear link. Sorry, a clear. Uh, Lowering, you could say, of consciousness, of awareness, or in our neuroscientific terms, a less proper stimulation of empathetic uh, neurotransmitters. So there's a decrease in um, um, dopamine and serotonin. You have decrease on beta endorphins. So there's as energy added to make up for the fact that you know your soul knows that what you've done is wrong, but because it's so heavy on your heart, the brain will override that, or at least try to override that for a little while, and then you crash. So the assumption is yes, yeah. yes, you are a good person to begin with because you are indeed made in the image and light yeah. of God, but you're also a person, you're not God. You are temptable, you are fallible, so you want to do an extra work if for a variety of reason you end up in that darkness. <laughs> to assume that the darkness is just a different shade?
0: Yeah. No. Well, so it reminds me, I can't think of the name. uh, The Telltale Heart, I think. The Edgar Allan Poe story where the guy hides the body in the wall and then eventually he crashes, right? Eventually, like the the horror or whatever, the the guilt just overrides him and and he... Spills everywhere. But there are some people who can do that and not feel anything, right? Like either they're broken in the brain or they've Mm overridden the... That like... Yeah, Sorry okay. to be metaphorical, but if God has uh-huh. written goodness in our heart, right, yes. and 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 that guilt, uh, just will be there. Some people can eventually strangle that, or don't even have that conscience. Don't even have that. Mm-hmm. They can be malformed, maybe in the brain, or, or are you saying that? Oh, so
1: it, it's just que- as a question as in wh- why why would God build faulty brains? Is, is, no, is no, that no. What you I, or
0: or, or? I, well, well, one assumes that. I mean, we just know, I'm not really interested in that question because some kids are born with cancer, right? Some kids are born yeah, yeah, deficient. Yeah, yeah. So like some people, some, some people could end mm-hmm. up with that part missing, that conscience yes. missing, mm-hmm. or they mm-hmm. can eventually strangle that. Like, are, I guess my question is, are there brains that don't have like morality, that they're yes. missing mm-hmm. good and evil? Uh, and yet they still function I s- socially.
1: Sure, sure. sure. Like, uh, without without you know, getting too philosophical here, think about individuals on a, um, on a spectrum. Asperger, for instance, that their emotional connection is different than the average person. So their behavior might be perceived as callous or heartless. Okay? So in, in that sense, I want to make this clear. There, there is no such thing as a psychopathic brain, a normal brain, or an Asperger brain, per se. In this sense, it is on a spectrum. That's for sure. You cannot. There's no clear-cut dividing line. If your whatever um, beta, beta endorphins go below this level, that makes you pathological. There's no such thing. Okay, okay. Yeah. It, 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 that is a spectrum. So, um, it is, the, this is the usual nature-nurture debate. Um, yeah. So, if, if the question is, can people be bored with an evil brain? The answer is no. Period. No. But there are different variations of that, and thank God there are, so that people will do different things. In other words, uh, Mm. to become, I don't know, a computer engineer, you might not need as much empathy, so to speak, in your social interaction as if you are a host in a show. You need to sense the crowd.
0: Um,
1: However, this is where we go back to humanism. Most of the variation, individual perception, are variation according to the things that modern society considers optimal not traditional ones as in there are brains that are less capable of doing good mathematics that brain that are less able to um, perform the skill as as you know in a precise way but in terms of loving everybody is able to love the point is that there are different ways to love and and and, and this, this, I hope I'm not <laughs> sounding too new agey here there are different ways to love but there are different languages. And so, for instance, a person who might be unable to, a person who might not have any major deficits on a path of uh, psychopathological level, but their impairment is entirely on a sensory or sensory motor level. This person cannot hear, cannot taste, cannot see. It's really hard to claim this person is a nice person. This person does not have a ways to convey that. But if you do believe that that person too is made in the image of of God, Then it's up to you as a therapist to try to take those things out in different ways.
0: Hmm.
1: So if a child is hurting another child on a playground, for instance, yes, first of all, you separate the child from the behavior, you deal with the behavior. And that's where both listening, which is a positive psychology element, and psychoeducation comes in. Whatever your starting point is, assuming that this brain has I don't know fifty percent goodness and fifty percent evil, and this one has eighty percent goodness and twenty evil, whatever your starting point is, you can always increase that goodness. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Doesn't matter where you're coming from.
0: Okay, so okay. So in the therapeutic context, you I'm sure that you've probably there's probably diagnostic things that you can do like that you know of and there's probably intuitive skills that you've gained over yes and, and that you probably have. Um And you're assessing somebody, like, I guess this is, like, a a hypothetical, so it's kind of a dumb question unless we make a story up about this. But, like, you can, like, be Mm. in the room with somebody who's a psychopath or somebody who, let's just say, has very, very little light in them and a lot of darkness, Mm. right? And, And what are, like, some of the methods that you use to get to, or to start to foster that light or to get them to recognize that light? Like when when you assess, if you've ever assessed somebody and you you find that somebody's like way far away from the light, like Mm -hmm. how do you, how do you?
1: Yeah. Well, there there are things you do with them and there are things you should do on your own. So for instance, I would say that it's probably 50-50, I would say, although my, my advice will be, to any new psychologist, psychiatrist that wants to go into this field is spend more time working yourself than with your patients.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, What do we mean by that? Uh, Let's assume that the evil is coffee and the good is milk. Okay, And you're a cup and the patient is a cup, right? So you're entering a room where there's black coffee and you're milk. What is the likelihood then your goodness will spill into the coffee and make the coffee lighter in color. And what's the likelihood that the coffee will actually affect you and stain your milk? Okay? Yeah. So that's where you need to do a lot of work on yourself to be well grounded. The person in front of you should be, in this sense, esoterically speaking, etymologically speaking, and theologically speaking, sees as an enemy. You're there to fight a battle. Oh. You're, fight to, you're there to, sl- to slay the dragon. You're loving the person. You recognize the person is made an image of God, but you're really dealing with Lucifer. You know? it's, it's, it's a fallen angel. It's, it's, it's a lie that really wants to capture you. So you need to prepare for battle. So there's a heroic element in, in psychology, in psychotherapy. Really? And that's where you need to work on yourself. Absolutely. You're the
0: first one to admit that, I guess, this explicitly, that there is a battle that's going on. Absolutely.
1: And so the best image I can have is the one of a, a demonic possession you know the enemy took over the patient now this is extremely dangerous to make that claim because we are you know almost done but yeah uh, if if someone will ask you okay so what what's the the percentage of people that are affected say by schizophrenia that are indeed possessed by the demon maybe 0.000000000001% yeah. almost non-existent but your attitude should still be the attitude of I don't know Archangel Michael, the, 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 the flaming, flaming sword. You need to go there and slay the dragon. Okay. So that's part of the work you need to do yourself. And you can do that by you know spending time by yourself, you know meditating, praying, whatever you need to do to cleanse your soul and be ready for battle. Once you're with a the patient, there are different techniques. Uh, well, I would say that for the most part, most psychological work it's done with assessment and conversation. So you have certain questions that you need to ask in a specific order. And you associate specific values, and then on your own, you kind of calculate the values and the averages, and then you come out with a with a temporary diagnosis. And yeah. you know, not a, no serious psychology will give any you know full diagnosis right away. Although, let me be clear that if you argue that what you're doing, nine out of ten percent of the time you'll be able to spot what the primary direction is. Okay. And then in terms of the conversation, uh there are a variety of directions you can take. So I'm gonna be very, very brief. Let's say a person, I don't know, I'm gonna give you this kind of dumb example. Uh, you, you, you're becoming an eco-chamber for the patient, but you decide where the eco is going, yeah. all right? Okay. So let's assume that person yeah. comes in and tells you things, oh, I don't know, the effing system is out to get me, you know, everybody, it's, it's hateful, and you know, they just want to crush me, they just lock me here to give me ECT, they just want to you know, steal my money and make me crazy damn, something like that, okay? you come in and you, you don't want to make any assumptions, as in they might be right. There might be someone after them. So you you your assumption that, OK, how much of the, what this person is saying is pathological or, you know, it's a lie or a distortion or paranoia. Well, let's give them benefit of the doubt. OK, so you have the echo chamber and either you go in the direction of reducing the echo and by what is it? So are so you telling me that you're here because the feds are after you? Sorry, but I failed to see where the feds are. Can, can you tell me? You're not doing this in a snarky way, but you yeah. go to the point. Yeah. Or you do just the opposite. Oh man, I get it. You know, it's if, 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 if the feds were after me and I would not be able to leave with that, that would be, make very, very mad. So, so tell me more about it. And again, you're not playing with the patient, but you are strategizing, strategizing with the demon. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're not it, lying to the yeah.
0: patients it's uh psychology is uh it's like it, it's just so it, it's on the balance line of like you are manipulating people for their own good yes. though, but it is you are it's just you are you're a manipulator right so so let me use this this metaphor okay
1: um i always make this 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 comparison right a psychologist and a spiritual person, an imam, a rabbi, a priest, a pastor, but uh, a psychologist is also an educator, okay? So where would you draw a line between education and, um, you know we talked about education, in the past, yeah. and, and seduction and-, and, and uh, Indoctrination, um, grooming, Indoctrination, whatever, brainwashing, yeah. yes. Yeah. Education, etymologically speaking, means to grab someone from here and drag this person here, ex ducare, ex ducere in Latin. So you do that, and that's precisely what at least 50% of work should be done on yourself. You have the extreme power with your words, Yes. by the way, not as much as you think you do, because the demon is not full. The demon is out to get you, all right? So you you might think you have more power than what you do, but you might be swallowing the battle, you might die in the battle, so to speak, okay? But the more you work on yourself, the more you say, okay, well, I will use some things to Elicit a response in my patient, but I will do my best to make sure that the reason I'm doing this is justified ethically speak.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And so I guess the the other side of, you know, the the two main, well, I I don't want to reduce it to two, but, you know, two main questions about, uh, that a psychologist, you know, needs to have answers to, I guess, two premises is that, what is the human? Like what, what, if I'm making something better, what is a human, right? Like having an understanding of what a human is and high functioning or whatever. And also the, the basis of my work, is it to love this person? Is it to fix this person? I guess for me, I would put myself in the position. It's like, okay, yeah, I, I really think that the war and, and that metaphor of the demon and that battle is really, uh, really useful to the work, but also you're actually kind of, there's a damsel there, you know, like I'm, I'm saving, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm rescuing the princess. I'm rescuing the soul. I'm, I'm trying to love yes. this person. Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm fine. It's a spiritual battle, but, but ultimately the direction is, is not to conquer, but to, to, to free. Right.
1: Correct. Yes. Um, um this is really basic, but I, I still believing that, going back to the basics, like the, the purpose the purpose of life in general, I mean, there, there, are, there are variations, but overall, I think it's to to know and love God. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty straightforward. If someone were, were to corner me, okay, in the absence of any other values, you don't know who you're talking to, you cannot take into account cultural factors. What is the meaning of life? To know and love God. That's a good place. Okay, but what if God doesn't exist? Well, you know, whatever you believe, I can see some divine light in the person, so to know and love the person, to know and love the patient. Okay, yeah. So that, that would be my, my, my answer. The patient, not the shield around the patient that might be created by, quote-unquote, the demon, and that's the tricky thing. What part of the patient is the patient? I mean, in, in the example I gave you, the assumption is that it's relatively easy to find what the patient is. The patient is the baseline, calm, nurturing person that was affected by r- various things. But what about, and this will start a whole other conversation, but I think it's fair for me to mention it. What about uh, the old multiple personality disorders? What about dissociation? You know, multiple personality now are you know, DIDs. Which of the thousand personalities is the real one? Yeah. Okay. And, um, and again, it, it's not necessarily a big problem if you're well-trained. But you can see how that could constitute an ontological issue. Okay, which one would you pick? Which, again, I think is what's happening. (laughs) This is very esoteric. Where (laughs) the demon, the trickster, the the Satanist influence affects society as a whole. Everything is on a spectrum. You can be whatever you want. There are thousands. Well, to me, psychologically speaking, that's dissociation. It's shattering identity. Oh. And that's why we have this need of having thousand pronouns. Yeah, shattering identities. Our job is to bring it back to the good, the truth, and the beautiful.
0: Yeah, yeah. We could go on, but I am sure you have a lot of other things to do. Um, so I think we should probably wrap up now, uh, David. I think we're I think we're making a, a series here. I think I kind of understand what we're doing because your wealth of knowledge, I think it, it just it needs. Yep. I can't just reduce you into one hour or two hours conversation. Like I feel like we're, we're on a big adventure. So so thank you uh, for joining me. And um, yeah, I guess that's the end of the recording for now.
1: With a great start of the year. Thank you. Oh yeah. Happy new
0: year. Let me stop (laughs) the recording. Can I ask you something off record? Yeah, sure.